I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. You can unlock the entire LRB archive for free for 24 hours by visiting lrb.co.uk forward slash open. Hello and welcome to the Verso podcast in collaboration with the LRB Bookshop. My name is Brian Dillon and I'm going to be speaking to uh, Mark Greif, uh, whose new book, Against Everything, subtitled On Dishonest Times, has just been published by Verso. Mark is a founder and an editor at M Plus One magazine. Um, he teaches at the New School. He's professor of literary studies there. His first book was The Age of the Crisis of Man, which we may also touch on in our conversation. And his criticism and journalism appear regularly in publications such as the LRB itself, The Guardian, the TLS, The New Statesman. Mark, uh, I wonder if we can begin with uh, your title. Um, and maybe maybe we'll come to the subtitle and dishonesty uh, in a while. Against Everything, uh, I just reviewed the book um, for a new uh, online uh, publication called Four Columns. And I, I guess I made a very obvious point, which is that the, the title recalls Susan Sontag's um, Against Interpretation. I wonder if the title points to an idea of critique, um, a broader sense of intellectual critique, how that might overlap with somebody like Sontag historically, um, and to what degree it points to something personal and more writerly. So maybe we take the first part first. Well, it's, it's a terrific question. Um, I did have the Sontag title in mind, and I suppose a set of titles that go along with it, you know, Dwight McDonald's Against the American Grain and so forth. But also, I suppose, the sorts of titles that appear in articles on the internet now and even a range of books that you find, you know, on the on the tables of three for two books or whatever in paperback in the bookshops. It, it seems to me that in some way we're in a moment again when cultural criticism, a very honorable tradition, has become the stuff of, you know, think pieces, awful, awful word and a kind of trolling culture. So I figured if in fact we're going to have to live among you know, books marketed to dog lovers called against dogs and books marketed to cat lovers against cats just to try to get, get people's goats. Why not accelerate this? And in, in some satirical way, go all the way against everything. What else do we have? Um, but I think you're exactly right. There was behind it something maybe quite banal or quite familiar in the tradition of critique, um, as a matter of method. Uh, what would it take? to take the position first of skepticism or, or to take the position first of thinking, let's say, and insist that with the things which are universally believed at this moment and known to be good, 
uh, just as with the things that are universally known at this moment, at least by the bien pensant, to be villainous and wrong. Uh, do I believe that? Do you? Uh, as an individual thinking as far as you can, is it really the case that this kind of super praise and, and super vilification doesn't rest on, on bad faith? And could you propose first a method, let's say, in which for each and everything that you do, even in your daily life, you ought to ask, does it hold my weight if I press against it, right? Does it, um, does it stand up if I lean on it or lean against it? And I actually did imagine the title in that kind of physical way. Um, that it would pay to be face-to-face or, or pressing against everything in daily experience. Some of the early essays, um, and maybe we'll talk about their context uh, in a while, which is uh, the early days of M plus one, which was founded in 2004, right? Um, some of the early ones take as their target, their, their subject, um, what seemed to be perfectly banal and innocent and natural uh, categories of daily life, uh, an essay against exercise, an essay against what you call the, the turning of food into a hobby. Um, to what degree are those, in a way, influenced by, I guess, it's a kind of mid-20th century notion of the intellectual's role as an unmasking, um, not just a kind of uh, broad scepticism, but a kind of pulling away of the veil. The the model, the obvious model, in a way, is, is Barthes' mythologies in 52-ish. Yeah, I, I mean, I think... Um the, the kind of broad vision you invoke of a, a mid-century mode of, of um, critique, which would extend to the things of popular culture, the practices of daily life, and, and which belongs to Bart and mythologies and to Siegfried Krakauer and the essays. What are, what are the title they're collected under in the United States? I'm trying to think. The Mass Ornament, I guess. That was a book that certainly affected me a lot. Um, I do think of them as, as at their best, at least wishing to be in the line. Of that tradition. And, and Sontag, whom you invoked first, really is one of the signal writers for me insofar as, um, she insisted in, in some of her great essays, I think, on the place of science fiction movies, the place of pornography as supplying, you know, not only art experiences, but kind of categories for thought that extend elsewhere. Um, I did think though that, uh, even in a way beyond what, what would have touched, you know, Roland Barthes in the, in the 1950s and 1960s in Paris. Um, there are degrees of the invasion of the intimate, let's say, um, of the kind of practical grooming of the body, uh, which must be taken up now. And, and to that degree, you know, this is not in any sense a discovery of mine. I mean, in that sense, it, it belongs also to this other line that one would associate with, um, well, theory with the capital T and also cultural studies as it was practiced in Birmingham and then elsewhere, you know, the line that includes Foucault on disciplinary practices and, and Bourdieu on habitus and all the rest. So, um, those things are present, let's say, and influential. And, um, to make such a list is, is, uh, to feel like a bit of a, a dope in the midst of them because, um, you know, the day that, uh, that, Foucault's books happily welcome a book by me on the shelf. It would be the best day of my life. <laughs> but, uh, but it's, it's unquestionable that all those influences are, are there, at least in, in the desire of what I wanted to do. I wonder if there's, there's a question about theory with a, with a capital T. When I, when I reviewed the book, I made a, uh, too glib comment about what I called mm. the, 
the, the inwardness of the, the post-theoretical humanities. It's glib in a sense because it's also, you know, it's uh, it's my education as much as it's mm. yours, and it's mm-hmm. it's impossible for for some of us of a particular generation to to escape those thinkers. Yeah. But I wondered if, and I guess this begins to touch on the history of uh, of M plus one. I wondered if there was at the time in writing the early essays, the essay on exercise, the essay on food, the essay on what you call the the sex children, which is very much, I suppose, in a, in a, in a kind of lineage of, uh, of Foucault and uh, a critique of the way that uh, liberation, in fact, yields to a mere liberalization yeah. and, uh, of and sexuality Mar- and desire. Certainly, who's invoked there? Yeah. But I wonder if there was also in those early pieces uh, a desire to break with theory, with a capital T, in terms of the kind of mode of address, the more personal mode of address, the kind of language that you were using, uh, that you and colleagues at M plus one were using in the early days. Is there a kind of deliberate move away from the academy that you'd been educated in? Hmm. I mean, I um, I think not intellectually if that makes sense and not methodologically and not even temperamentally um it's certainly the case that many people you know in the late 1990s and the early 2000s uh, would register a kind of dissatisfaction with the um the cooler and uh more abstract um and also more imprisoning visions of theory right we must recover individual agency and so forth i've never been one of those people <laughs> on the other hand i i think in the way that these essays came out you're you're i think exactly right and and quite fair in describing even you know and criticizing uh, a a post theoretical turn towards perhaps a renewed attention to the individual self and the inner world etc um but the way that those initial essays came about for me i think had much more to do with say the practical possibilities of academic employment and all the rest in that um, it didn't seem possible to theorize in a very grand way, especially just as like a schmuck and a grad student and, you know, uh, in my mid-20s and so forth. And on what basis? At the same time, it no longer seemed um, sane or wise, if it ever had been, to jump through the academic hoops, let's say, of producing endless literature reviews of what previous people had said or, or producing a kind of work in which you'd say, well, I, you know, I think on page 55, Foucault missed one thing, which I can supply. And and so to that degree, it felt like um, there was the freedom of uh, an inability to publish, uh, an absence of a readership, uh, a kind of disinterest or antipathy from the university world in which I was training, um, and, and equally so from the kind of fatuous world of what gets called cultural journalism, often, I think, um, too loftily. I mean, usually just junk. So, um, in that sense, uh, I really did feel uh, actually a bit with, you know, some jokes that along the lines of jokes that Thoreau makes that, um, one winds up starting with the self because, um, there's no one else that one knows to the same degree, right? Thoreau has that joke, you know, I would not so much obtrude myself on my readers if I knew anyone else as well. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, there is that, um, what, immediate experience quality to the essays. But I did want to make an effort to not be the sort of memoirist who would say, this thing once happened to me, love me, pity me, whatever, but to see if it was possible to make once again at least general or categorical statements of the kind that you would hope for from the really noble tradition of capital T theory. 
we'll, we'll come to uh, the the self and experience. Experience is a kind of key term in the uh, in the whole book in a moment. But I wonder if um, some of that uh, context at the beginning um, of uh, the history of these essays and the history of uh, of M plus one has something to do with um, the history of the, the magazine, the review, the the journal uh, as a space of potential of intellectual and political potential. I remember uh, attending a panel in the early 2000s in, in London at the, the ICA in about what, one of those dreadful panels about the, the, the crisis of criticism and the failure of criticism and the absence nowadays of the great, you know, uh, summarizing and, uh, and, and obvious uh, visible public intellectuals such as Sontag and so on. One, one of those occasions when people simply decry the present in the light of half a century ago. And I made the point that actually maybe the magazine uh, was a place where things were beginning to change. This is, you know, 12, 13, 14 years ago. And people were kind of bemused in a way that it would simply not be possible now. The magazine, the journal, the review, whether it's online or uh, or in print, seems to be the place where much of the intellectual energy happens. That ref- that demands a kind of move back to, in a way, some of your kind of founding intellectual interests, in, interests in intellectual history, which have to do with the middle of the 20th century and publications like the Partisan Review. Do you want to say a little bit about the importance of the magazine, in other words, the importance of the context for, for these pieces? Sure, yeah. I, I mean, I, um, I would have been the lone person, Brian, agreeing with you, standing up to applaud at that panel 13 or 14 years ago. I mean, I think that... Um, it, it is absolutely right that, well, first of all, that in a way, those years ago and when N plus one started, um, it did not seem quite as obvious as now that there could be the sort of, I think, genuinely revitalized world of small publications in which people would really argue things with one another. And certainly in the States or in New York to look around and see the New Inquiry and Jacobin, the point in Chicago, um, the Los Angeles Review of Books now, the million uh, different kind of online publications, you know, which are not just blogs. I mean, it was actually the blog wars into which we unwittingly fell when when we started M Plus One. All these things um, genuinely mark a better literary and intellectual culture than than existed, I think, um, when N Plus One was started. With N Plus One, um, I think it's funny, the world that we knew was one of individual publications in the United States, critical magazines, um, which were either explicitly um, and wholly political, you know, often attached to a kind of splinter leftover um, socialist party remnant or, or kind of Trotskyist, <laughs> post-Trotskyist post remnant, um, or, and the magazines that we really read and loved, the single regional magazine, which continued in a kind of belief in in a critical position on popular culture and in popular culture. So in Boston, where I grew up, there was a magazine, Hermanot, um, run by uh, Josh Glenn and, and um, A.S. Hamra, where, you know, where the logic was hermeneutics plus um, astronauts going into the great beyond of like movies and cartoons and all the rest. Tremendous magazine. Of course, The Baffler in Chicago, um, which was really the magazine I think we looked up to most. Um but it was strange to have this regional tradition and kind of single stream 
tradition because when the Baffler was destroyed by the Great Baffler Fire in 2002 and ceased publication, suddenly it seemed like, oh my God, you know, there's going to be nobody to shit on tech culture uh, as it deserves, you know, there's going to be nobody to point out um, the kind of nonsense world of marketing. Um, and that was a, an incentive to start N plus one. At the same time, even though those individual publications in cities other than, you know, the great metropolis uh, of New York um, belonged to maybe a, a kind of tradition of punk rock zines and things, which we all lionize, it seemed clear that they could never penetrate the kind of big media um, that wind up setting the nonsense of common sense for everyone. And so um, with N plus one, we kind of faked initially being in New York um, and producing it as a New York publication and indeed kind of faked uh, an installation in that tradition that includes partisan review, dissent, um, commentary before it became a, you know, a vile right-wing rag. Um, and it was funny. I mean, at the time, even I, I, I always felt slightly guilty about it or, or as if it were less honorable than, you know, the small Xerox zine in Cleveland. But it seemed like a moment in which it would be possible and necessary to fool, you know, the big culture outlets, the New York Times and, and radio and all these things, uh, for the sake of the future, to fool them that, in fact, um, you know, in the midst of big media, there might be these people who had something different to say. And in hindsight, and as a, you know, a semi-serious scholar of that mid-century moment, one of the funny things about Sontag and her long-term trajectory, but one of the funny things about many of the people who really do linger with us and make an impact is the degree to which they wind up hustling, you know, the very large-scale centralized uh, apparatuses of publishing and trade publishing and of, you know, media. I mean, so it's signally important to Sontag that Time Magazine, um, in the most superficial way imaginable, takes up that first book against interpretation um, and misrepresents it, perhaps. But it gives her a kind of degree of penetration, let's say, for her ideas that really does last. Um, and I think that's something that we set out kind of consciously um, to do. Can we talk a little bit about some of the um, specific essays where perhaps there's a kind of turn from, you know, the sort of stripping away of the, the veil of, uh, of uh, everyday life, those, those kinds of um, supposedly neutral categories such as foodiness, uh, exercise, and so on, to, it seems to me in the book, um, the kind of moment where something else happens in the essays where your subject is not simply um, pop culture or an alternative culture, such as the culture of punk that you describe really well coming out of, um, but something that's, that's hovering between the two and that's therefore kind of ambivalent. And that is the, there are three essays on music, um, uh, quite well-known essay on Radiohead, Radiohead and the philosophy of pop. Um, an essay in which you describe uh, learning or failing to learn how to rap, um, and an essay on punk, which is largely about um, the Velvet Underground. Um, it's one thing to to strip away the the pretenses of uh, of a category like you know gym going. It's something else to to take on the history of popular forms that also have a kind of oppositional content and long history, whether that's, you know, co-opted or diffused historically or not. 
But um, it seemed to me that the essay on Radiohead, Radiohead is really uh, important and seemed to me to rely on almost a kind of humanist notion of the rock band as a kind of container for uh, a message, uh, to put it in the crudest way. I think at, at some points in the essay, you, you try to shy away from reading Radiohead, you know, as, as, as if the lyrics can, can be read and uh, detached from, from the music. I wonder how successful, how, how possible is that? Um, there's a real difference. Maybe there's a kind of intellectual history difference between American writing about rock music and, say, UK writing about rock music, which seems much more concerned with a sort of sociology of the scene on the one hand, and also a kind of texture of sound uh, on the other. There's this kind of sense in which you read Radiohead as, as kind of great humanists. Yeah, it's funny. And um, yes, well, and good. I hope you will tell me the... the um the counter case for the anti-humanist Radiohead, <laughs> but no, I I think what you say is um, it's a, both a fair and an accurate description of of the role of that essay. I mean, I there's several maybe quick things to say. One is that I do see that transition in the book um, as one of let's say beginning with. Uh, asking about the things which other people like, and I like some of them. Uh, it was, let's say, it was easy for me to get off a treadmill finally. It had not uh, been always my favorite thing to do. But, um, you know, I like eating. I like food, right? Uh, there, in the beginning of those pieces, and certainly the piece on sex, too, there is al already the question of whether the things which we allow ourselves to like too easily um, don't kind of fall apart. Uh, or wouldn't be done differently if we were genuinely to, to scrutinize them. Um, with those music essays, which I think of often as the truly embarrassing part of the book, but I take it that embarrassment is, is core to, um, whatever philosophizing would be. Um, with those, I had to say, all right, you know, what are the moments in which um, you find that you really recover the kinds of feelings that seem as if they would belong to a world of um, transformation, right? Uh, and then I, I would be like, oh, man, when I hear the Dinosaur Jr. album or something, which seems to me uh, a genuinely embarrassing thought and, and a thought that should be embarrassing because it clearly puts the weight of very grave and serious um, emotions and thoughts onto something which which should buckle, you know, kind of loud music by teens and for teens. Um, and so that was the investigation, let's say, in those essays. Uh, what does one hold on to? What does it mean that there should be this surprising gravitation, even of what we would think of as political uh, motives around people with guitars, but then also what do you do with it, especially as you grow to be an old person? Um, I mean, I do think in my own writing, the thing that's changed over time that I like or value most is that um, I think I've realized the degree to which I missed out on uh, being a sociologist because I was busy being a, uh, a fop and an esthete, a literary person, you know. Um, but I like those essays best where they both manage to hold on to, you know, the strong and even kind of bratty emotions of, uh, of youth and yet figure out 
why they happened, or in the case of hip hop, for me as a kind of white kid, didn't happen um, at key moments, precisely because of these much broader uh, social determinants and social forces. I guess the other thing I would say, um, just in tribute, is that the kind of music writing which I've liked best and the stuff I valued most, um, I don't know if it's British or American precisely overall, but but it it may really have a home here. It's things like um, you know Simon Frith's book. Which one is he the right one? No, there are two Simon. Yeah, it is Simon Frith. There's Simon Frith and Simon Reynolds, and I'm always mixing them up. It's Simon Frith, and it's a book called Performing Rights. Uh, it's not his earlier book on sociology of rock, which I just, I mean, I think it's just one of the, like, the best books ever written. <laughs> because there he had previously done a kind of very rich sociology of scenes and bands and industry and all the rest. Um, but in that second book, I, I, or maybe it's like his, could be his tenth at that point. I mean, he's a productive writer, but, um, he goes into what are essentially, it seems to me, aesthetic questions in the richest vein. Why do I feel the way I do upon hearing this? What is the transfer between the artist and, you know, and me? Um, but always with a kind of sociologizing substrate or, or depth of knowledge. Um, and that's, uh, it's true that in a way it doesn't quite function as, um, art or music criticism, which I, I thought was a fair, um, line of critique. Uh, in your review. And it certainly doesn't, thank God, you know, make the mistake of turning rock lyrics into poetry and, and being like, isn't it curious that this line emerges in, you know, in uh, falling meter or something? Um, but it does try to figure out what are all the practical and, and real uh, elements of what is essentially a kind of very evanescent emotion, and yet the most important, let's say, of response, the most important element um, in this particular art. So it seems to me that, that there, there are two kind of uh, fundamental concepts that that function in the rest of the book. Once once you get beyond I me, mean, it's a slightly artificial uh, joint or uh, uh, hinge that I'm, I'm positing in it. But um, the first is experience, and the second is uh, is aesthetics. Maybe we can I can ask you about aesthetics. It's it's a really curious moment moment in the in the book where you say that what one of the things that you recommend is a kind of aestheticism. I wonder what that is precisely. It's a kind of attention. Uh, it's not an aestheticism in the sense of a kind of detachment or dandyism. Uh, is it right to say that it's precisely the opposite of that? Mm. I wanted, you know, it's, it, it does come in, in, um, one of the essays that meant the most to me in writing it because it was most useful. And I felt like I was starting from zero, you know, concept of experience, right? The meaning of life, part one. <laughs> there is this account of aestheticism. I did want to try to identify it as a, a historical phenomenon, you know, one that I make this claim that it, it gets going or can be recognized in a, a, a robust state from the 1850s to the present. Um, and the claims of it are not that hard to articulate. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. 
Only at a sleep number store or sleepnumber.com. Right, this is the kind of aestheticism that says, almost as a set of instructions, um, take the world and its objects, both the paintings that hang on the wall and the strangers you meet on the street, as productive of um, the very same emotions that you get exclusively, we would think, from works of art, right? Uh, look to your daily life, to trees, to people, to street drama, um, in the way that you would to a play and so forth. And uh, as a kind of reciprocal move, stylize your life to make it a work of art or worthy of having the integrity of a play, a novel, a poem, etc. Um, what this seems to produce at first, is, as you suggest, different modes of attention um, to experience. I didn't want, though, to champion or defend this precisely as much as to identify it as one of the genuine kind of, I think, modern forms of ethos or, or new ethics, which we don't tend to you know, list when you talk about what are ethics, what are morals, um, when we think of the right, the good, the ought, the should. Um, but also that as an ethic, it doesn't just exist as something, you know, dreamt up in the way of, of the elder mill and, and Bentham producing utilitarianism, but it comes really as a response uh, to the kinds of illnesses and impossibilities of a modern rendering of life into experience, experiences that must be saved, preserved, created, quantified, and all the rest. Um, and the other, the other, and maybe this was, you know, next on the, on the things to take up, but there is this other suggestion of perfectionism, um, a, a successive transformations of the self to become what you are and all the rest as the kind of twin, um, to that. I really do see them as unacknowledged, Bases for much of the way that I find myself living or justifying life. And, um, it's easier to see in other people, right? And, and, you know, the ways in which friends, uh, even parents, um, the way they too kind of decide and justify what they will do with themselves. Do they see, do they strike a chord for you, Brian, or no? <laughs> they sound, uh, I'm always in favor of aestheticism. Ah, yes, um, yes. Absolutely. They sound, uh, modernist in some yes. respect, right? Um, the, the attempt or the claim uh, or the urge to dissolve the distinction between everyday life and the aesthetic, um, to turn art into life and vice versa, um, runs through, as you say, the, from the beginning of, beginnings of European modernism in the, in the middle of the, the 19th century, but reaches a kind of like heightened moment in the early 20th century avant-garde. Um, how is it different? And what, what, what is the, you know, the, the moment that you describe in your first book, um, the age of the crisis of man, mm -hmm. the response there to a kind of perceived notion that, uh, a kind of coherent subject is being dissolved historically the response there is not a modernist one anymore it's half a century on in the wake of the wars and so on and it's it's essentially a it, it's a philosophical one in a way it's an existentialist one it's a socio sociologizing one um why why this return of or to the aesthetic mm, mm, now mm. Yeah, it's funny. Well, I, I would find myself first saying, um, 
maybe it happens over the course of the book, but I, I find it very hard to imagine advocating for aestheticism or, or for the, the wisdom of this, um, as opposed to, you know, producing a kind of diagnostic account. I, doctor, see myself patient and say, oh man, this is what you've been doing, right? Um, I do think yet yeah, characteristically modernist, but in a certain way, I would want to say modern in, in that we don't actually escape it, right? And even the kinds of accelerations of, uh, of the postmodern and beyond, um, seems to me work rather ceaselessly within this frame of the production of experiences to be saved, to be savored, to be improved, uh, and kind of categorized. Um, what has actually happened now? Uh, I, you know, I take our moment as maybe, and you'll have to tell me if this was in fact not your, your kind of question or that last turn as essentially continuous with the 1960s and the 1960s as being essentially continuous with, you know, 1890 and 1890 <laughs> is essentially continuous with, with, uh, 1850 in that, um, we experience acceleration of a variety of things. And certainly at this moment, the endless proliferation of the image, capital I, um, but often just producing, especially when it comes to the, the kind of longer understructure of things that people bear with them as beliefs, uh, things that people offer when the chips are down as the rationale for why they took that vacation or why they insisted on photographing themselves in front of the Eiffel Tower or whatever. Um, I think those deep inter understructures still are not fully pulled into view. Um, and I do think they're actually pretty consistent over quite a long time in whatever this thing is that we want to call the modern. Can I ask about the, the sort of um, the decade and more kind of arc of, uh, of the essays um, is not exactly, but, but almost coterminous with, with the history of certain wars. And the book seems to me towards the end to become much more explicitly political. And one of the ways that that happens is actually in terms of a kind of attention or attentiveness um, to particular experiences. And the the moment that really, really struck me was at the beginning of your essay on the police, which is both an essay on the reality of policing in America and the concept uh, of the police, which you really interestingly point out uh, doesn't fit with any reputable philosophical understanding of the democratic state or civil society. It's, an, it's a, a bizarre anomaly. But the essay begins with a description of the ways in which police officers may touch other citizens, not necessarily violently, or at least not violently to begin with. Can you say something about, I mean, is, is there a kind of conscious uh, sense for you that, that this notion of attentive or a notion of attentiveness and a notion of, of experience um, becomes in the course of the essays you've written for, uh, that, that have ended up in, the, in this book much more pressingly focused on those kinds of moments? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it um, if there is such an arc over the course of the book, I would be pleased first. Um, second, it would be... Um, in part, a, a kind of conscious effort, a consequence of conscious effort. Third, it would be in part a consequence of aging. Um, because I do think uh, 2003 is the moment we start working on N plus one, and I start writing these essays of a type that 
I suppose I had always wanted to do, but it felt impossible to do because I had to pretend that any thoughts I had were the consequence of a new Ian McEwan novel. Incredible that there's still new Ian McEwan novels about which people have to pretend they've, you know, <laughs> taken some, <laughs> some matter of deep consequence, um, rather than just standing on their own two feet. But, um, it was an incredibly hopeless moment, I think, in 2003, because you seem to dwell in a world of just unbelievable lies, mendacity, horror, uh, an invasion of Iraq that everyone knew had nothing to do with uh, 9-11 and so forth, and nothing to do with weapons of mass destruction. It's worth, I keep insisting on this, uh, because somehow history has changed where people say, oh, well, now we know that it was all premised on lies. It was very clear in 2003 that it was all premised on lies. Anyway, um, that does shift such that now in 2016, and the police essay is the most recent in the book, you know, I just wrote it last year. Um, I think the world, the intellectual world, the social world, and the political world are all much better, uh, precisely because social strife and dissensus are once again in the open. And things that are discussed in the book under the guise of political surrealism, a universal basic income, redistribution of wealth, not only upwards, etc. Um, in earlier years, now once again are, are on the lips of practical policymakers and so forth, right? Um, as far as my, let's say, ambitions as someone writing these things, uh, yeah, as a much younger person, the experience essay was to me the most important, at least, because I felt I was starting from zero and dealing with a kind of bewilderment in the world. Why did I do the things I did? How should I understand dating? <laughs> you know? And um, curiously, the police essay now is by far the, the piece that I'm proudest of from recent times. It is the most recent, and it represents the thing that I would like to do insofar as... Um, as one gets older and kind of bought into structures of the official in lots of ways, you know, uh, as you become a person who's teaching rather than just a student who knows that all teachers are idiots. Once one becomes an idiot teacher oneself, um, actually you're able to see and, and touch face to face the incredible corruptions and, and, uh, you know, kind of, um, mystifications, compromises, et cetera, of quite large scale structures of power. Uh, even to the police, the army, democracy itself. Um, and so in that sense, yeah, I'm willing to go along with this aging thing more than just, you know, gray hair and a paunch. Uh, if it gives a kind of critical vantage on what come to seem like, you know, well, capital S serious matters, uh, that's all to the good as long as one doesn't lose, I think, the immediate experience that roots them. And so that is why that police essay starts with being touched by police. I mean, it was largely a, a post-Occupy effect of just being around police a lot more <laughs> and having to think about why and how I, as a petty bourgeois person, had avoided them and how much I'd misunderstood them and how much I, they are mystified. Um, less so in an age now of Black Lives Matter, but all the more reason to, to be quite precise about what they are and do. Um, you, you've mentioned age uh, a few times uh, yeah. in our conversation so far, and, and it's, it seemed to me like a kind of undercurrent in uh, in the book. It was it seemed to me something that you were quite aware of even in the early essays was a sense of your own kind of chronological position in relation to, for example, people in their teens or or twenties who you refer to in uh, in the essay um, on uh, what you call the the sex children. And you make you make a claim there about how. Uh, the older and perhaps especially older male 
Um, and here you're writing, I guess, in your 30s, um, late 20s, early 30s, um, looks at the young or the people that he or she has suddenly discovered are young um, with envy. And I wonder if there's a kind of sense that uh, we, that is, you know, uh, people of my age, say, in their 40s, are among the first generation to look back at, to look at the young and not envy them. Hmm, hmm. Um, it seemed to me the book sort of proposed, uh, without ever really coming out with it, a notion of um, youth as a particular kind of political category today, hmm. and a sense that maybe the the intellectual situation, to use an M plus one phrase that you're describing now, has partly to do with the kind of return of an idea of youth as a political category mm. that had been kind of occluded after the, the 60s. Mm -hmm. A notion you know, blindingly obvious, for example, in this country, that many of the kind of depredations of uh, current uh, political scene bear worst, bear most cruelly um, on, on the young. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, this may be a case where other people see more wisely <laughs> than you do yourself about the stuff. I mean, I, I, I do find youth, youth and age as kind of preoccupations, which again, I feel somewhat embarrassed by, but I can't quite get rid of in the sense that, um, I really hated childhood, uh, and, and felt very strongly that, um, the sooner it ended, the better, because it just seemed obvious you couldn't do anything you wanted. And that, and that very clearly, you know, to be a child was to be a deficient, uh, ignorant and essentially incipient human being who, who would one day become a person, namely an adult, right? In those categories. Uh, sad to say, becoming an adult led to the discovery that one remained, uh, deficient, incipient, and ignorant. Um, and yet there really did seem to be a kind of exaltation of youth. Um, not only when I was actually within you know, the correct, uh, social categorizations young, adolescent and in my twenties. But even now, I mean, it's kind of perverse with, um, some of the reviews of this book. You know, how do you praise or sell anybody insofar as newspapers want to do this? Um, they have been calling me young. Uh, in what sense could I possibly be young at 41, right? A, a, an important young writer. I'm like, Jesus, uh, we really live in a messed up world. Um, I thought it was only, you know, I always thought it was very funny that for classical music, you could get like a young people's pass until you were 35, you know? <laughs> I was like, well, only if you're, only if your sense of humanity is that everyone is over the age of 80 and tottering in to hear Mahler, could you believe this? But, um, I think the explanation is that we do genuinely live in a, a kind of odd inverted world in which um, uh, a structure of, let's say, the genuine fruits of experience, right? The idea that you might learn things as you got older and not just turn into a freakish reactionary, but be able finally to put your hands on the levers of power to improve the world in the, in the ways that you imagined you ought to when you were 16, this seems to be often inconceivable. Um, and I do find, yeah, that the book unquestionably, and I don't know that I've got past it, is preoccupied with how to dwell in such a world um, where, first of all, it's almost impossible to read, to, you know, regard um, without some temptation, the blandishments of, oh, you are so young and supple, you know, you must have something important to say to us all instead of like, oh, you probably don't know anything yet. And and on the other hand, the kind of abjection uh, at the other end of never being willing to die and always saying, like, I'm going to make sure I get an extra year, an extra two years, the sense that, um, you know, old age or limit is is not actually a, a kind of 
proud end to a satisfying life, but just like the worst imaginable thing. I was, I was telling someone the other day, it's always good. I find people can wind me up quite easily. And somehow this came up and um, I would pass the headquarters of Pfizer in uh, Manhattan and they had, I don't know what drug they were peddling, but they had um, this new advertising campaign that they had hung on banners everywhere on the walls outside, which said something like um, old age. It doesn't have to be all bad. And I just thought, like, fuck you. Are you kidding me? You know, I mean, what, what? Anyway, sorry. Yes, this, uh, this is clearly the voice of, um, of inarticulacy, but it, but there is something quite powerful there, just of madness, uh, in the inability to think of a life as successfully progressing rather than as just a long succession of losses from when you were, you know, a wrinkleless baby or something. So the the essay on um, the afternoon of the the sex children uh, ma- still, makes still my proudest title. <laughs> it's an excellent title. Thank you. Um, makes his argument that that uh, as I said earlier that uh, supposed liberation in, uh, in fact reveals itself to be merely a kind of uh, sexual liberalisation. Mm-hmm. Um, does that then lead on to uh, present interest in? Pornography is that? Am I right in thinking that there's a, there's a project? Uh, yes. Well, that's the next book. Yeah, the next book that I'm writing now is about pornography. And um, yeah, to be fair, the uh, the liberation liberalization uh, coinage. It's Herbert Marcuse. God bless him. Love that man um, and his account. I often think actually of Marcuse and uh, his his uh, denunciation of the canalization of libido into the sexual, right? I mean, I just imagine Marcuse like surrounded by goats who are rubbing up against him and, you know, in hauling wood and living in a fully libidinized world <laughs> and then being like, oh man, this giant lake of, of sensual pleasures and, and, you know, satisfactions and cathexis has just been cut into this tiny canal of people worrying about their genitals. And um, yes, that is what's happened to us, the canalization of libido. Anyway, um, pornography, it's funny because uh, as can maybe happen when you're actually writing a book, I've come to believe that um, through this tiny and, and actually satisfyingly comic register of things, I mean, apart from the the evils of the production end of it, the reception and uh, history of pornography going back to Fanny Hill and earlier, it's actually quite funny in part because there are all these peculiar people running around trying to evade censors and kings and so forth in order to basically show people fucking or very often sitting on the toilet or whatever. I mean, it's an ama- it's just a kind of amazing history. It's, um, it's the most pleasurable thing I've worked on, you know, uh, much better than like researching the Holocaust or something. But um, the idea there is that uh, you ask, what does it mean that suddenly there's a whole world of naked people somewhere on the internet pictured, uh, many of them ostensibly having sex or the thing that's called sex when there's a camera inserting itself between, <laughs> between the two people, uh, who are attempting to touch. Um, and that this is known as a kind of open secret. It doesn't, it doesn't belong to official accounts of how we think about uh, faces and bodies and people and, and, you know, photographs, um, and all the rest. And yet one knows it's out there. Um, what does it mean for the aesthetic, uh, and the kinds of high categories of the aesthetic, which have always depended on forms of distance and especially of a withdrawal of immediate interest, right? If you see a painting of a horse and want to ride the horse or, oh, that's a good horse to ride, or you see a still life and think that's a delicious apple, or you see a person and think, I would like to make love to that person, you have just evaporated in the, at least in the kind of classical line of this, uh, the aesthetic moment. So there, there are those lofty questions. There are the very, there's a very practical question. 
question, and this returns to your point about youth, um, what does it mean uh, to come into, let's say, all of these picturings of ostensible sex before one has a sex life of one's own? Um, and then in a broader sense, are we in an era in which we're constantly being invited to look at objects of interest, food, uh, stuff, um, God knows, grooming, etc., as furnishing art experience. So in some ways, the flip side of the aestheticist or the aesthetes problem. Um, but yeah, I've really come to believe that with this relatively narrow and I, I hope somewhat comic question, right, of what do all the naked people mean, um, that it, it will be possible to pull on all of these other strings about what we are invited or tempted uh, to undertake under the guise of what formerly would have been art experiences or meaning experiences in the kind of free love world of the late 19th century um, and experiences of self-discovery. So yeah, that's the porn, that's the porn project. Uh, w one of the interesting moments in um, the afternoon of the sex children essay, mm. um, I thought was was a moment where you acknowledge the existence of a vast body of feminist literature on on this subject, but you you shy away, you pull mm. back a little, or am I misunderstanding that that moment? Oh, that's funny. I mean, it, it's well, yeah, you, it, it's yeah. it seemed to me that there was something ambiguous happening at that moment that, that there was a kind of perhaps uncertainty about wanting to step into fields in which other scholars and other writers had obviously written so much. Yeah. Um, That's interesting. Yeah, no, it's an interesting question. I mean, because it's certainly where I come from in some sense, um, or it's what I was raised in or steeped in as a kid. And, and, um, you know, there's a preface to this book in which I try to spell out the degree to which um, dissatisfaction with the world as it is represents a kind of identification of an identification with my mother as as <laughs> as she was when I was a child, and as I did genuinely just you know how to be a child is to think about oneself in relation to the parents, and um, and it was my mother's kinds of dissatisfactions and and um, obstructions as a woman, you know, entering in the 1970s, uh, these various men's fields that I thought, I was like, I must avenge these things. This is my life's work. And yet, of course, um, very peculiar thing to be born a boy child, because there's a sense in which actually you can never quite avenge your mother in this way, because, you know, to achieve anything is to do it in the context of being a male and being given all kinds of unfair prerogatives and, and benefits anyway. So, yeah, I mean, the moment you speak of, I do remember it now. Um, I think the it's like a footnote. And the, the point of it there, I, yeah, it, it alludes to the kind of um, 80s uh, anti-porn feminism of, of um, McKinnon and Dworkin and others, uh, Susan Brown Miller too, and so forth, and, and says, in effect, um, it has to do this, it's around this particular question of sexuality and youth, that in a way, the much more important feminist critiques for this moment now um, were the critiques of old age and of aging as a woman, which I think have been dropped, you know, on the order of Beauvoir's book, Old Age, and even Betty Friedan had a book called The Fountain of Age. And I mean, there are many other figures of this. And I guess I do feel, um, I wouldn't call it discomfort with inserting myself into that, that story, but um, a certain... I don't know what, uh, care or like weird mismemory, because there is a certain way in which, especially 70s feminism has been recalled now. Um, 
But again, on the experiential dimension, I remember what it was like to be raised as a child where one would be told by adults, but also you can still read it in Free Dan, you know, this promise, like the only way we're ever going to get anywhere is with the generation that was not already steeped in uh, patriarchy and would fight against it, but with the children. And often in some of the passages, you can still read from them, the boys, right? What will become of the boys? Well, as one of those boys, we've certainly uh, kind of betrayed <laughs> and failed <laughs> what was demanded, but not entirely. And um, yeah, I, I would say that uh, I often don't want to go as far as taking, you know, people from Shulamith Firestone to, you know, Kate Millett and so forth as if they belong to me. Um, but I do want to make sure that that those are the starting points. Um, and certainly this new, the new book on porn, um, starts from, uh, one of the best books I think that's ever been written on sex and the cinema and all the rest. Uh, you know, um, Linda Williams has great book, Hardcore, uh, about film pornography in the 20th century and, and Laura Kipnis, who's someone I admire and a friend. Um, and, and yeah, it's funny. I mean, Sorry to go on about this. I actually feel quite strongly about this. It's funny because a problem, too, of feminist scholarship and feminist theorization is that um, had the world really gone in all the ways that it should have, uh, one wouldn't think of it exactly as feminist criticism separated out. But you'd just be like, oh, well, you know, the greatest work on film pornography is X or, or the most important work on, you know, men and women and structures of heterosexuality is Y. Um, and so I think there is a kind of strategic intention of allowing uh, such people who've, you know, who in some ways dictated or influenced my way of thinking to come in, but not necessarily under the category of feminist thinker X. Well, thank you, Mark, um, for a really fascinating uh, conversation. Um, that was, as we said earlier, uh, the Verso podcast in collaboration with the LRB Bookshop. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.